Well, good morning. It is great to see you. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors and really glad you're here. Uh, Thanksgiving potluck on th- this past Thursday was a great time. Uh, glad for those of you who came out. We missed those of you who were unable to make it. It was a great time together uh, as a church community. And I pray for all of you this Thanksgiving week that we can all have hearts of gratitude for all the good gifts that God has bestowed on us uh, all. And Speaking of good gifts, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at one of the most familiar Old Testament passages for many of us, God giving the law in Exodus chapter 20. And I said this last week if you were here, that the law is one of God's greatest gifts to his people. God has led Israel to Mount Sinai up to this point in Exodus. They will camp here for 11 months where they will be relearning and redefining their identity as God's people. At the end of chapter 19, uh, we didn't read this, but let me set the picture for you. God descends on Mount Sinai, uh, as he calls Moses to come up to the mountain. God descends in immense power and glory with thunder and lightning, fire and smoke. Chapter 19 says that the whole mountain trembled greatly. And then the Lord speaks. And that's what we're looking at this morning in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's word together. This is God's word to us this morning. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Now let's pray together. God, I ask that you would speak to us by your spirit, to our spirit, that you would truly illumine our minds, Lord, pierce our thoughts, Lord, would you plow up the ground of our hearts to be receptive, to be willing, therefore, to walk in the truths that you would have for us this morning, that we would encounter you, the one who speaks to your people that we would leave here changed and willing to walk in fellowship with you. Lord, would 
Me who is the preacher be removed so that Christ is made much of and exalted. I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. Our Lord and our rock and redeemer. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. If you were here last week, I pointed out Exodus chapter 19, and we looked at verses 1 to 6 and kind of zoned in on verses 4 through 6. And verse 6 said that God's people are called to be a holy nation. A holy nation. And I said it's not holy in the sense of morally pure, but holy in the sense of being a set-apart people with a special purpose. And the special purpose is to declare God's glory to the world by being a holy people. We are to be holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. How is holiness going for you? If you were to ask your family or close friends to describe you in three to five words, would they use the word holy? We're to be a holy nation, a holy people. If we're honest, though, this word holy can put a bad taste in our mouth. It could feel a little bit like broccoli when we were children. Growing up, how many of us were told by our parents, eat some broccoli? And we took a bite and we're like, yeah, that's not any good. And the parents would respond, eat some broccoli, it's good for you. You take another bite, it doesn't seem to be good for me. This is what holiness can feel like to many of us. Be holy. Ah, That's not any fun. Be holy. Ah, That seems restrictive and prudish and a little uncool. And then we hear some pastor or church leader say, hey, God says be holy. It's God's gift. It's good for you. And we're like, "Ah, sure doesn't seem good for me. Holiness can be an undesirable term for many of us today. It can conjure up the thought of arrogant people, hypocrites, people that seem holier than thou. But God says be holy. Set apart people with a special purpose. And then He speaks these commandments, these laws, these rules. And God giving the law, God is giving His family a charter of conduct. Rules to live by. The way that we are to walk and talk that reflects to the world what it means to be made in God's image. Rules. We're all familiar with family rules, aren't we? Household rules that you grew up with in the, in the Mason household. We had rules like say yes sir and yes ma'am. Do your chores on Saturday, by Saturday or else. Take off your shoes when you enter the house. Don't hit your brother. Right? These were the rules in our house. Without rules, there's chaos. Rules help create order. We all operate, most of us do, (laughs) by traffic rules. I mean, imagine if people decided, I don't want to stop at red lights anymore or stop signs. Those are optional. It would create chaos. All organized sports have rules. I mean, imagine if someone's playing basketball and they decide, you know what, I'm going to tackle anybody with the ball. Or I'm going to kick the ball into the basket. It would ruin the game. It would not be the game of basketball anymore. Chaos would ensue rather than the game. Without rules, society breaks down. Without rules, nations are unable to cooperate and live peacefully. 
We all know this. So God gives to his people rules to live by, a charter of conduct. Former news anchor Ted Koppel spoke at Duke University at a commencement and now what has become somewhat of a famous address said this. Said what Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not ten suggestions. They are commandments. Are, he said, not were. They are ten commandments, not ten suggestions. God's people are to live by them. We've actually decided uh, since where we are in Exodus and uh, where we are as a church that at the beginning of the new year, we're going to do a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Starting January 7th, after Advent, we're going to do a 10-week series on the Ten Commandments uh, with the prayer that God would continue to shape and mold us as His people to reflect His glory in this world. But this morning, we're going to look at the giving of the commandments, the giving of the family rules. Three questions that I want us to ask this morning. Who has the right to give the laws? And why are the laws given? Second, who is able to keep the laws? Who has the right to give the laws? Let's look at that first. Look with me at verse 2. God speaks and says, I am the Lord. We'll just stop there. I am the Lord. God speaks and he says, I am the Lord using his covenant name again. If you were here when we looked at Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked God, who do I tell Pharaoh has sent me when I come and say, let my people go? God tells Moses, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them the Lord, Yahweh, in Hebrew, has sent you. It's the same Hebrew word here, Yahweh. The great I am. I am who I am. The sovereign one. The supreme one. The self-existent, eternal, unchangeable God. He is the Lord who vanquished the Egyptian gods through the sending of plagues. He is the Lord who parted the Red Sea. He is God. And if He is God, He has the authority and every right to command what He wants and to make the rules. I realize there are some of you here this morning that would not profess to believe in this God. And I'm really glad you're here that you would be willing to come and listen and inquire and learn about this God we profess. We would love to talk more with you about what it looks like to trust and to follow Him. But the question for all of us, no matter how you come into this place this morning, is, is there a God? Is there a God? And it's this question that leads to the search that will give meaning to you and to your life in this world. Sociologist Christian Smith was doing research on our current culture's view of authority and morality uh, back in, I think, 2009 to 2011, roughly. And he wrote one response from a Notre Dame student. This is what the Notre Dame student said, again, in, in light of authority and morality. The student said, I mean, I guess, what makes something right or wrong is how I feel about it. But different people feel different ways, so I couldn't speak on behalf of anyone else on what is right or wrong. This view has been termed moral relativism, that morality is relative to each person's own choosing. 
Now, as much as our culture lives this way and may say this, I, I don't think it's really possible to live this way. Because we all have a, a kind of rules by which we operate, code of conduct, a view of right and wrong. And it's more than just how someone may feel about right or wrong or how another person feels about right or wrong. It's a view of right and wrong that a person presupposes that then gives order to their life. And without that order, people live in chaos. You see, whatever you use as the absolute ultimate presupposition for the creation of this world and this life in the world is the thing that you will use to determine what or who sets the rules for you and how you live in this world. We believe here at Christ Central that there is a God, a creator God, the God of the Bible, the God of Exodus chapter 20. And if he is the Lord, he has every right to set the rules and issue commands by which we are called to live by. Everyone who calls themselves a Christian has to bow to God, must relinquish autonomy, and live in complete surrender to him. So if, he, if God has the right, which is what I'm saying he does, why does God give the laws? Look at verse 2 again. God speaks, I am the Lord, your God. Your God. This is very personal. God's not some taskmaster giving rules that restrict and ruin our lives. God giving the gift of the law is a personal invitation to know Him and to know His heart. It is an invitation to intimacy with the God who created us. And who is this God? He is the one who delivered you out of Egypt. We say this often here, we've said it a lot, especially in this sermon series, that order is very important in the gospel of Jesus. Order is important. We see that here. God says, I am your God. I have delivered you from bondage. And then he gives commandments. Deliverance precedes the giving of the law. We are a people rescued first and then called to follow. These are commands given to God's redeemed people. It's vital that we understand that God loves us so much that he would do anything to deliver us from darkness and bondage and oppression. That we need not perform or earn his love. We need to prove our worthiness. That by and through Jesus we are loved, redeemed, and set free. And this leads us to follow and obey him. I heard a story that there was a woman brought to a slave block beautiful woman, thin. So a lot of people thought she wouldn't get much at the slave auction. She wasn't strong, probably wouldn't have much strength in the, in the fields to labor, not domestic enough, many thought. But the bidding for her became aggressive because men began to eye her for the wrong reasons. And the, big, the bidding began to soar, and the, and the young woman stood there with dignity and defiance. And the whole scene was obscene. And I said this in the 9 a.m., and I'll say it again now before I continue in this illustration. And even as I say that, I need to make a kind of a point of where we currently are in the realities of what's being public in sexual harassment and sexual abuse 
It's not, it's not a new thing. It, it is being brought into the light. <coughs> Excuse me. And the church has often remained silent and, and not been a place of refuge for those who've been wounded and hurt and deeply pained uh, by abuse or harassment. Uh, and so uh, I want to just say we as a church deeply uh, want to, to listen and to care for you uh, and to see God bind up the pain and the hurt and however that looks like for you. <coughs> so um, please know that. I'm gonna, I'm cough, I've been coughing all week, so I'm sorry. <coughs> so let me, let me set this illustration now that I've pressed into the realities of our current culture of um, and, and sexual abuse and harassment. But this whole scene, here, here this is this woman brought to the slave block, beautiful and thin, Men are now bidding for her because she's sexual. And finally, one man prevails and he purchases her. He pays a large price. He walks over to claim this girl. And she says, again, in dignity and defiance, you think you own me? You think I will ever be compliant? And she spat on him. And he said, young lady, I didn't buy you to own you or use you, but to set you free. And she said, I'll go with you anywhere. Our God has delivered us, redeemed us, and set us free through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Do you know Him? If you think His rules and His commands are so harsh, I'm not sure you know Him. God's rules and commands are an invitation to walk exclusively with Him. We were created to walk in fellowship with our Creator, and when we understand our redemption in Christ, we will want to follow Him anywhere and everywhere. Every time we break the first commandment, shall have no other gods before me, we prove ourselves to be loving something more than we are loving God. God is saying, I created you in the beginning to walk with me to know my love and for you to love me, for us to be in this exclusive marriage together. But Adam and Eve disobeyed. And all of us who have followed disobey. And we give our love to things more than we give our love to God. And so God wanting to recreate a people who walk with Him in love gave us commandments, a charter of conduct to get what we want the most, what we were created for. A deep, exclusive, intimate relationship with our Father in heaven. So we can be tempted at times to think that God's commands are unnecessary. If God is love, it doesn't matter how I live my life, right? God loves. Yes, it does matter how you live your life. I mean, who in marriage would ever say, my spouse loves me? It doesn't matter how I love them in return. Marriages are destroyed by loving things more than we love our spouse. When someone loves their work more than they love their spouse, their children, their money, their comfort. Your marriage, in the inverse, is strengthened when you love and receive love. Actress Kira Knightley was quoted as saying this, If only I wasn't an atheist, I could get away with anything. You just ask for forgiveness, and then you'd be forgiven. We understand the gospel like this sometimes, that it's just a blank check, a free free grace to live however we want, freely loved, and therefore it doesn't matter how we live. Yes, 
it does. Sometimes in the church, we can emphasize what God has saved us from so much that we lose sight of what God has saved us for. God has saved us for a personal love relationship with Him, an intimate marriage with the God who created us. Walking in obedience to His commands is the good life. It is a life of enjoyment with our Father. I had a friend describe living in holiness and walking in obedience with God uh, like teaching a child how to ride a bike for the first time. So I imagine teaching my children how to ride a bike for the first time. I will be there to, to, to hold them at first and, and to tell them, you just got to pedal. Keep both hands on the bars. Keep your eyes ahead. Right? There's a certain way that you have to ride the bike. Pedal. Now remember, Dad's right here. Dad's got you. I'm with you. And if you fall, I'm going to pick you up. But as they progress and learn, they keep pedaling and they're learning. But I'm still there. I'm with you until they can ride on their own. But the end is not just so that my child or any child can learn to ride a bike on their own. The end is so that I can ride a bike with my child. So that we can ride down the street together. Go ride in the woods. So that we can enjoy doing it together. God's commands are necessary because they lead us to know God and his heart and to walk with him in intimacy and fellowship, not doing life on our own, but together with him. We follow him to enjoy him. And by this, by our enjoyment of God, the world witnesses and sees a holy people, a set-apart people. Our children will listen to the Westminster Catechism for Children in the Car. Uh, the Westminster Catechism put to, for Children put to songs. And there's a song in question that comes on that both our kids know by heart. And it's this song, What Were Adam and Eve Like When God Made Them? God made them holy and happy. Holy and happy. What? I, I can, it's in my head. I can, I, I, it's good. You should, you should listen to the Children's Catechism. It's really good. What were Adam and Eve like when God made them? Holy and happy. Holiness is not a no to happiness, but it's a resounding yes to happiness. This is why God gave the law. Let's look lastly at who's able to keep the laws. Who's able to keep them? Listen to the Ten Commandments as I read them earlier. I don't know if you know them, if you're familiar with them. Shall have no other God before me. Guilty. Shall have no idol, carved image, anything you worship more than God. Guilty. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Guilty. You shall keep the Sabbath day holy. Guilty. You shall honor your father and mother. Guilty. You shall not murder. Jesus tells us if anybody gets angry, they've committed murder. Guilty. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus again tells us if anybody lusts, they've committed adultery. Guilty. You shall not steal. Guilty. You shall not bear false witness. Guilty. You shall not covet. Guilty. We are all rule breakers. There will be churches that will, during a time of confession, churches that do time of confession, will sometimes throw the Ten Commandments on a screen and just allow the Ten Commandments to convict the people of God of their sin. If we're honest, we are all guilty. So much so that, that sometimes we actually like breaking the rules. I mean, 
we, we take some kind of joy in it. If you're like me, maybe you're not like me, but uh, you see a sign that says, do not. What do you want to do? You want to do it. Right? Like, I, I'm tempted to want to do it. I, I can remember living in China, seeing a sign that said, do not walk on the grass. And gr- the green, greener areas in China were, were few because of how large the city was. And every day I wanted to walk on the grass. I just wanted to at least take a few steps on the grass. Right? We sometimes like to break the rules. Uh, just this past week, three UCLA basketball students and players got caught shoplifting in China. Uh, why, why did they do that? I don't know. I haven't talked with them, but I, I bet a piece of it was just to see if they could get away with it. We're all rule breakers. We're all commandment breakers. When we look honestly at God's call on our lives and we feel the weight of these commands, we can think they're unattainable. And that can result in us becoming cynical. And we begin to say things like, well, God's commands are too hard. They're too demanding. I don't, I don't think I can do it. And the truth is, you can't do it. I can't do it. By ourselves, we cannot do it. One of the main purposes of the law is to reveal our sin and be our tutor to lead us back to the God of our redemption, to lead us back to Jesus. We've been studying 1 John as a staff team, reading through it. Let me read 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. John writes, My little children, throughout 1 John, he, he refers to them as little children, very affectionate. My little children, he writes, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, so that you're holy. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John says it's best if you do not sin, but when you do, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Who keeps the law? Jesus. He kept it perfectly without sin, perfectly obedient. He was the perfect Adam who listened and obeyed his Father. He is our advocate. Through Him, we have forgiveness and righteousness. heard a story told about a man and a woman. They were about to be married. And the man said to his fiancée, I've not been honest with you about my past. I've actually been with many women. And if you want to walk away now from this marriage we're about to enter into, I get it. I get if you want to walk away. And she looked at him and she said, we'll soon be married. And I've seen God work in your life. I know you've repented. I'm thankful for your honesty. It's further evidence that you have a relationship with Jesus. And she continues, she said, I know you're a a man prone to temptation. There's an evil one who's going to tempt you. But I know and trust that you'll pray to resist and run away. And the evil one won't quit. He'll continue to tempt and tempt And you'll say no and no. But there may come a day that the evil one finds weakness in you and drives a wedge between us. I hope that day doesn't come, but if it comes, the devil will tell you all is lost, that you are a failure, everything is a sham. And she said, I want you to come home when that happens, and I want you to tell me what happened. Because in this house, there will be forgiveness. And I want you to look the devil in the face and tell the devil, you have no idea who I'm married to. We're all rule breakers. 
But do you have an idea who you're married to? That in Christ's family, there is forgiveness upon forgiveness. And when you feel weak and full of shame, I want you to look at the devil with tears of repentance in your eyes, and I want you to say, you have no idea who I'm married to. We know Christ not to sin so that grace abounds, but when we sin, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus. We know Christ so that we can walk with Him in exclusive marriage of intimacy and joy. So once we're united to Christ, we have the joy of living out what's true of us. Christ Central, we are to be a holy people because of what Jesus has accomplished and what he will accomplish in us and in this world. When you're a child, broccoli sure doesn't seem good. But as you grow up and you learn about nutrition, you learn broccoli's good. And you actually begin to think, it tastes good. Broccoli's good. Sometimes it can feel like holiness isn't too good. It seems undesirable, unnecessary, or even unattainable. But it is good for you. It's the good life. It's the best life. A life of union and communion with the God who has delivered and redeemed you. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to trust in Christ's the one who has delivered us and set us free. And when we understand that, we will follow you anywhere and however you've called us to because we know in it is not just holiness, but also our happiness, fullness of life with you, intimacy with the God who created us, a love that is unending and never failing, a never giving up love that pursues us even when we turn away and we break the law. You come after us, and we celebrate every week as we come to this table that we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus, who intercedes on our behalf and reminds us every week that there is forgiveness, and every week we're strengthened to walk with you. I pray you bless your word that we just heard and the word that we're about to feast upon, the bread of life, Jesus himself. In your name we pray. Amen.